So let's talk diversity. We are three identity centers. Sitting at the intersection. Upperman African American Cultural Center. Mohan Schultz LGBTQA Resource Office. And Centro Hispano. Hi, I'm Sean. I'm Brooke. I'm Edel. I'm Liliana. I'm Manny. I'm Dion, and we're at the intersections. Hey, how's everybody doing? Welcome to our inaugural podcast at the intersections, uh, where cultural center staffs and directors get together and kiki and laugh and giggle and also talk a little bit about our work. Um, And today we are celebrating Latin X, Latino, Latina, y'all gonna have to help me uh, with my terminology and we'll talk a little bit about that Heritage Month because it is where we are launching out into the land of Central Hispaniola as we think about the intersections of our people. And so again, um, I wanna let you know who's on staff or who's with us. I serve as, my name is Sean Palmer and I serve as the director of uh, Upperman African American Cultural Center. Um, and let me, and Brooke, tell them who you are. My name is Brooke Lambert. The pronouns I use are she, her, and hers. And I run the Mohan Schultz LGBTQA Resource Office. And I'm Edel Segovia, she, her, and hers, director of Centro Hispano. Hola, I'm Liliana Madrid. I'm the program coordinator and Casa advisor. My pronouns are she and her, and I work with Centro Hispano. I'm Manny Lloyd. I'm the Pro- Cultural Enrichment Program Coordinator for the Upper Mid African American Cultural Center. My pronouns are he and his. What's up? Everybody, I'm Dion. I'm Program Coordinator in the Upper Mid African American Cultural Center. My pronouns are he and him. As am I. He, him, his. Yes, yes, yes. So we're going to kick it off. Before we get started, we want to since our program is called At the Intersections, we have a section every week that we're going to start, which is called In My Car. And in my car, each guest is going to tell you what they're reading or watching or listening to that is dope in their lives. Um, and so that way you get, a, you get a little bit of a curated understanding of all the amazing things that we're up to. Uh, because we're more than cultural center staffs and directors. We live full, robust lives. And so we want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in our world. So Liliana, what's in your car? So one of the things that I actually just started watching the other day was, if you haven't seen it on Hulu, there's a show called Woke. And it is a story of a black man who kind of goes through this self-identification process. He's a cartoonist and he thinks that some of the social justice issues that are going on around him don't pertain to him. And the main concept is once you see the truth, you can't unsee it because there is a portion in the show that you watch. And I don't want to ruin it for everybody where he has this moment of awakening And as a person of color in this country, I think some of us try to navigate life and say, that's just a little too serious and I want to take it light and that doesn't pertain to me. But as you see in the show, when it hits you, you can't unsee it. And all of a sudden his world is shook and he has to figure out a way to now navigate this space. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's just a couple of shows in. Um, It's brand new. So check it out. So you're going to send me your Hulu information so I can watch that too? I'm going to add you to the family plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate it. It's the no commercial subscription, so it's, uh, you know, it's up hey. Oh, that's fancy. Oh, fancy. That money. That's that new money. <laughs> guys, guys, no cable, but we got some Hulu. <laughs> hey, I'm not mad. Dion, what are you listening to? What are you watching? What's going on in your world? 
I am back watching all Dev Digital uh, on YouTube uh, because I love comedic relief, uh, especially after a long day at work. Uh, so they just recently relaunched a lot of their uh, different uh, episodes um, uh, for the different, uh, uh, what do you call them? Uh, I guess like jokes that they do, like dad jokes, uh, bad jokes, roast me, uh, would you move here, bad time, all, all of those like comedic type stuff. So that's that's what I'm listening to and watching right now. So a lot of YouTube. Do you what's in your car, bro? Um, so man, I'm, I am all over the place. I'm reading all sorts of things and watching all sorts of things. But the one thing that I was thinking about the most, probably because I was talking to my wife about this show yesterday, um, because she's been working during this whole quarantine, like going into work. So I've had a little bit more free time, which means that I've been able to watch a few more shows. So she'll come home and be like, Hey, let's start this. And I'm like, so funny thing is I'm already done with it. Um, so that's (laughs) so, but the show that I was, I was telling her about that. I'm like, you really got to watch this show. It's called for all mankind and it is on Apple TV. It's on Apple, I don't know, Apple plus, whatever on Apple TV. And it's basically, so it goes back to the, the moon landing, the initial moon landing, but Um, it has a twist in it and it's, it's like, what would have happened had the Russians, uh, made it to the lunar surface before we did. And then we actually also started to push for women to be astronauts. And we wanted to put the first woman on the moon. Um, what would that have done for like NASA and for the astronaut program? And it really covers like a lot of um like gender inequality but also i don't again i don't want to give it away too much um because i want you to watch it but there are a lot of conversations around um sexual orientation and identity and what that looked like and what it currently looks like so it was it was a really really interesting show um so something a little bit different but that's what's been on my mind lately Adele, what about you? What are you into right now? So a friend of a friend sent me a link from Pilar Sordo, uh, S-O-R-D. She is from Chile and she has this podcast. She's a psychologist. She is doing a lot of uh, reflection on the lessons learned through this pandemic, a lot of introspection and uh, um, just looking within yourself and actually looking at yourself as the subject matter of your study. So I've been just listening to a lot of her podcasts. She talks a lot about um, going backtracking to some of her early, earlier ones as well. She talks about um, uh, feminine psychology, questions about family matters, life, uh, par- partnership, um, sexuality as well, uh, among other topics. But really what kind of hooked me was this um, lens, uh, looking at the self and you know, all of us are subject, subject matters. We're in academia, so our students are, are becoming experts in their fields as well. But in this case, uh, you hope to eventually become the expert in your own self. So the subject matter here is myself, introspectively. So it's really interesting. I'm definitely enjoying her. And it's all in Spanish, so uh, definitely enjoying that part as well. But Pilar Sordo, Renovación, that's what it is. It's, it's, all, it's an intellectual Spanish 
piece I got. It's reflective. I'm all into, you know, just learning about self, uh, meditation, mindfulness, uh, the who am I, and just learning more about the person that I am now versus the person that I was five, ten years ago. So this definitely hit, hit the spot. Yeah, yeah. Manny, what's in your car? I'm currently reading Making Hispanics, which is the uh, story of how they created the Hispanic category on the census. Um, It's really interesting that they're taking, looking specifically at Puerto Rican, Mexican-American, and Cuban-Americans and how they coalesced all those together to kind of create this pan-ethnic identity. And it talks about how that was beneficial, but now how maybe that's not exactly the best word to use or even like it's not... It's not it just kind of hodgepodge them all together. How it was political for them putting it together, but like now it's like okay, we're not we are now the same. We share, but we are not we are not the same. Um, so that's a great book. I'm listening to Snow the Product, Mexican American rapper. She's amazing. She's awesome. Uh, I discovered her via Hamilton. Um, that she was on the Immigrants remix, which was great. Um, and I'm, what I'm watching and I'm obsessed with, and Sean, you know, Lovecraft Country. Ooh, we share that together. That's like you were gonna take mine. You took mine. Okay, all right. Well, I'll, we I'll, I'll pass it to you. Can talk about it. You can talk about it. But Lovecraft Country, I'll let Sean go into it because he's he's a fan studies uh, degree master person. Um, but Lovecraft Country, it, it hits my historic piece. It's a period piece set in 1955. It hits my period piece uh, nerd side. It hits my sci-fi side. It hits my blow your mind because racism is horror. And like, yes, we knew that. But the way they show that and contrast that in the series, wow, chef's kiss. So good. If you are not watching Lovecraft Country, is it, watch. Isn't that, isn't that like Showtime? It is HBO Max. It's HBO. So are you going to be, are you going to give us access to your HBO? We got Lily on who, 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 said that? who said I had, who said I had HBO Max? So whose password are you using? We can, uh, that's an offline conversation that we can have. John Palmer. Palmer. Uh, Yes. Well, you yes. I'll give it to you. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how to, I never know. So the problem with with being at home, right, is like you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I can do a seven day thing. I'll, I'll watch this for seven days and binge the show. And then the next thing you know, as my wife has reminded me, she's like, Sean, uh, we have four channels that we are subscribed to that are now taking $75 out of our accounts. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. So I, <laughs> I almost ordered Showtime. I think I almost ordered Showtime last week. And I just thought Janika was going to break my, she was going to break me up into bits and pieces. So I said, let me not do this. So, but yeah, Lovecraft Country, I will de- I will definitely, definitely share whatever I got. But you should see it is really genre bending. Funny enough, Brooke, <laughs> here's your language. It's actually queering, it's queering ver- genres. Like it is not one easy drama. It is all over the place. And there is um there are there are conversations around sexual identity, I think. We actually think one of the main characters is uh, at least uh, closeted, for sure. Um, And so, again, like, there is a very interesting piece to the show that is happening. Um, Definitely, it's it's horror, it's sci-fi, 
it's the end of the world, it's good battles of good and evil, and then it's set in a period, and then the music soundtrack is everything. The mu- I mean, the music is just, the music will get you. So, like, there, we have, yeah, go ahead, Manny. No, there, I'm, I'll, I'll end, and then we, I'll try and see what you, what you got. There is, one, there is one scene that is the most horrific and terrifying scene I've watched in probably, like, four or five years, and it has nothing to do with, there's no blood, there is no gore, there is no monsters it is just one scene because black people will like will will be able to like attest to it like because realizing that this was a real thing that they had to deal with dealing with like sundown towns it is it is it is horror personified and i'm watching it and i'm like they're just trying oh, no. I, I don't, <laughs> come on just come on so like again i want to spoil it but watch lovecraft country it is, it is just, it's just a great story just overall in general yeah so I am binging. So beside that, I was gonna—I I was actually gonna talk about Lovecraft. But the other show that I am binging that is really engaging, um, and I get a lot of heat from watching it from my super super Christian friends who think that pastors are not supposed to watch things uh, is P Valley on. It's on Stars, and P Valley is about this Southern strip club that is primarily black and the owner of the strip club is a trans queer non-gender binary but he ident- but the person identifies as male cuz they call him Uncle Clifford but when i tell you Uncle Clifford is a father figure a nurturer he but also like not to be played with they've created love interests for Uncle Clifford um, and also, like, there are these beautiful, like, backstories to these Black women, for the most part, um, who are, like, trying to make sense of, like, doing quasi-sex work. And so it's like, it's like a, it's a more um, nuanced version of, say, the Players Club, if anybody's seen the Players Club. And so, like, uh, every, I got introduced to it by one of my mentees, shout out to Vante, um, and then... But all of my students were, all of my former students were watching it. And so I cannot get the soundtrack out my head. It's like down in the valley where the girls get naked. Like I just can't get it out my, it's, and it's a rap, it's rap song. And it's black women producing it. Like black women are designing the scripts and they're producing it. Um, one of the head characters is a Delta. So like, it's a very interesting take. I got my wife into it. Although she was just like, I don't know about the strip club shine. But, like, when I told some friends online that I was watching, and they were like, I just would not expect a pastor to be watching this. And I was like, well, who says that, like, why is the only place that is holy the church? Because I don't find, everybody don't find the church to be all that holy. So let's talk about that. So, again, it's been a really good eye-opening conversation. Now, my classmates who went to seminary with me all are watching it. Everybody's, everybody's So it's like the perfect mix of, like, Southern culture, uh, these very deep Southern accents that I love and I grew up on. And then like, um, I mean, and, you know, like, and they're talking about making chicken wings and, and all those kinds of things. Right. Um, and then like, um, there's also, but like very like complex characters being built in this Southern rural town that is dealing with gentrification and rule um, and, indu- and like industrialization and being uh, industrialization and being left behind. And so that's really in my car. And I'm kind of, I would say that I'm also reading, this other book, uh, I've been reading Delectable Negroes for the last couple of weeks in my class, but that's the other book that has gone alongside of this. And Brooke, I, I know I need to drop a copy off in your office because 
It is um, by Vincent Woodard, and the book is about um, um, how black men, and how black men specifically, are uh, homoeroticized by white by their white slave owners. And it won an award in the LGBT community a couple a couple of years ago, but the author died suddenly and was and left this really amazing book. And I'm using it in my class to talk about slavery. So that's like the thing in my life right now. So like that book gives me lots of insight. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing. But we're going to segue out of my car into our topic for the day. Liliana and Adele, are you ready? Because we've got some questions. Because Latinx History Month is upon us. And we want to know how to celebrate this thing correctly. So do we hang up all the flags? Do we go to our favorite Mexican restaurant? Do we, how do we, how do we celebrate Latinx History Month do, and do it well with intention and without being stereotypical, offensive, like we might do at Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> all right, so let's kick it off. Uh, first of all, Latinx History Month rolls between two months of the calendar. So we begin uh, September 15th and close it up on October 15th. Uh, that has grown since its uh, origins back in the 60s. It used to be wow. just one week long. But now, you know, we have grown into uh, a full month running 15 to 15, which is very nice because now we can also uh, do some co-programming and do uh, dual celebrations with LGBT History Month. So. That's exciting, but the date of it, September 15th, the kickoff happens to be the anniversary uh, of the independence. So Independence Day is for uh, several uh, Latin American countries, five of them on the 15th. We have uh, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua actually celebrate their Independence Day on the kickoff oh, of wow. Hispanic Heritage Month and then followed by uh, Mexico, Chile, and Belize, who actually kick it off the next day on the 16th. And it just rolls into uh, October uh, with a few more, um, well, a couple more uh, countries celebrating independence uh, into September and October as well. So that's why the date. And to answer your question, what do we do? Yes, we hang the flags. <laughs> you know that Centro, <laughs> over at Centro Hispano, we're known for taking our flags everywhere. Everything has to have a flag um, from our kickoff event, raise your flag, which is our welcoming event for our students. You know, everybody just kind of clinging on to uh, their heritage flag, regardless of what their actual citizenship may be. I mm. think that the... Um, Latinx identity, the ethnic identity is definitely very palpable uh, when, he, when we see our students wanting to cling on to that uh, national origin, uh, the heritage of their, of their uh, parent country, whatever that may be. So it's nice to see the students um, try to find, identify themselves in their peers and see how many more you know, are from Peru or from Puerto Rico or from Chile, whatever the country may be. Um, and uh, I love to see that because there is something about all of us celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month, but huh. deep down, obviously all of our identities are different, but deep, deep down, we tend to identify with that country, with the whatever that mother country is. Yeah. You know what's so funny, Adele, as you talk about it, like I remember when I was the uh, advising the Caribbean Student Association and working with my African Student Association in another college. 
and they would take their flags to parties. Like they would take their flags to parties, and like when that when the when the particular song hit from that particular country, like I remember this very upbeat Guyanese song when Guyana with my friends from Guyana, and they would take their flag and they would wave it in the air. Is that does that happen? In, in traditional, in, in kind of Latinx uh, environments, so like are, are more where, where folk are clinging to their country. Like, they do they take their flags to the party? Or is it is that acceptable to do? I don't know. I just, and the reason I ask is because like, since my identity is, pro- I mean, since I'm, you know, I would say I'm regular black, which means that I'm African-American and I can, <laughs> you know, a descendant of slavery, right? So I, we call that regular black around my way. Or as I'll give you a little vernacular, regular, regular black. Uh, and so I, I don't think I'm taking the American flag anywhere. No, but you know what? If you're talking about soccer, when it comes to the Latinx community, uh, you, what you just described is very much what you might see at a soccer field. And it's very oh, wow. much what we would see at the university when uh, a World Cup came around. Oh, yeah. Uh, students makes- carrying their flags, waving their flags. And just, my gosh, they were wearing the flag uh when the different uh, games came up and we would actually schedule them by country so that we would know that all the colombians were coming up the central <laughs> <laughs> and god forbid uh the brazilians showed up because uh the, you know our leader happens to be brazilian at the right. time we had our argentinian staff and then brazil and argentina were playing on the same day and then uh, they had to make peace uh before the game uh same thing i had a colleague who uh venezuela and peru were playing and uh, say, well, whoever wins, we're still going to be buddies. We're still going to love each other. But uh, when you came down to the actual game time, it was serious business. Ooh, and yes, crap. flags were flying. <laughs> now, now, Adele Center isn't the only place that likes flags, as I understand it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to come in. Yeah. <laughs> I, was at, I was actually on a, on a, I was meeting with some students and uh, they were talking about, you know, our center just expanded. And we don't have all of our decor back up. And one of the first questions they asked was where we were going to hang the flags. So um, it is, flags are very important um, in down in the mo, right? Very important. <laughs> so we're we're trying. So everybody, we're trying to figure out like a name for <laughs> Mohan Schultz. So uh, I mean, so we don't know. We haven't settled on anything. So the mo is what we're thinking about. Some people might think of it as the Schultz, but we we're open to ideas right now. I think, right? Yeah, we're we're open. I think uh, we'll throw some things out and and just really see what sticks, see what feels good, and then we'll go from there. As Zora Neale Hurston would say, they're wrapped in rainbows. Like so, <laughs> I love that. I love the idea of that at Brooks and Brooks Shop. Well, while you get your uh, your decorations and your flags order and try to locate them, in the meantime, we still have our rainbow flag hanging up at Centro. I think actually that may be the only flag that we have hanging right now. I think all the other national flags came down <laughs> to do the uh, I don't know photo shoots that we do for our um, Wall of Famers, our our oh, students yeah, that are graduating, cool. that are um, you know our, our leaders. So Adele, do you have? Let me ask. Okay, so a question for you: Do you have you do you and Liliana have enough space to put the flags up? Given no, we usually put in centro. We'll we have space to hang maybe four or five fly. Uh, I'm sorry, four or five flags at a time, and so we usually just hang the ones that are I guess most are 
most of our frequent flyers, we have a large Mexican community. Okay. Uh, part of our staff is also of Mexican heritage. Uh, if I'm lucky enough and I have another Peruvian around, I'll hang up the Peruvian flag. But uh, lately, <laughs> Liliana's got bids on really <laughs> who needs to be hanging up there. I, I, love, I love the idea that people are connected to a, a land and space uh, so much so that they would, unlike, I would say, unlike traditional, most African-Americans, I think if we took the flag and, and like we're walking around with it, it has a different resonance for African-Americans. And, and, and particularly in this moment, it would, I don't think anybody, most, most Black people in their right mind are not taking the American flag anywhere. Uh, we're more likely to have, I would say we would take the red, black, and green flag, but we actually don't have a red, black, and green, like, uh, national black solidarity flag hanging in the cultural center at this point. But I guess maybe we should have a flag up if all of our other cultural center colleagues have flags. <laughs> um, join us, join us, Sean. Join us. We, you, I can, can, can you wait to see that purchase order go in? Uh, we would like... <laughs> We would like the reparation flag and the, yes, the Pan-African flag. Uh, so. <laughs> BCC me on that one. Please. <laughs> so now Liliana, so what, okay, so Adele has given us like the, like there is a, so like between the two dates, like there's a rationale for these dates. And I think that that's true. Like some people don't know that like there's rationale behind the way in which people of color, folk who are at different marginalized intersections do different things. What are other things that we might see in practice during Latinx History Month that you would that you could that you have seen, done, heard, want to do? Tell me more. Tell us more. Well, actually, I'm loving the question because I've never thought about it from this perspective. So um our students know UNCW and at UNCW we have our three centers and there is the privilege of the fact that there are three separate centers with three different staff who are doing this work. Prior to here, I worked at a multicultural center. So part of the multicultural center's office is to do all of the heritage months. So basically it felt like from the moment that you got onto campus, all you were doing was programming based on months. And when you do that for a lot of years, you start to contemplate, am I doing this work right? Am I doing this for the best interest? Yeah. And like when I'm talking to my students, I'm like, why do we get February? February is the shortest year of the month. Like, I mean, the shortest month of the year, like we get gypped. And so we really started to break down what these heritage, heritage month celebrations meant in a multicultural space. And really, I, I, as much as I love programming, we also made a real intentional decision that we shouldn't reduce the knowledge and the history to the confines of these heritage months. And what we really started doing at my last institution was we're going to find programming that talks about these things and all of its intersections every single month, because it's unfair that for Hispanic heritage month, not only do you start at the beginning of the semester and you're straddling two months, which doesn't make sense to a lot of people because you can't really like, well, we don't own September. We don't own October. And then October is pride month. So you're like, okay, now we got to like make sure that we're mixing this into the space. And then we're not talking about all these other issues and you're trying to squeeze it between these like 30 days, not including weekends, right? And you're like, oh. the conversation, especially I think today is, and depending on where you're living, your history and knowledge base of Latinx history and influence in the United States is very limited. And to try to squeeze that in is unrealistic. Yeah. So what we did was we was like, okay, so for the Heritage Month, we're going to focus 
obviously on a keynote speaker who's going to talk about a specific uh, issue that like we've themed out the year to. And then we're going to have some cultural celebration because we recognize that having joy and happiness and celebrating identity is a very important piece of that. But we're going to continue the conversation throughout the year. So whatever our theme has been, that is a theme of conversation for every single one of them. And when we can intersect, we could intersect. And when we can have spotlight programs, we could have these spotlight programs. The biggest one, and I will, I will say this no matter what school I've been in, has always been the food. And being able to work with dining, to be able to incorporate some more Linux cuisine, at least for the month, because we recognize that making rice, as simple as that may sound, in bulk, with flavor, is a difficult thing to accomplish. Oh, you know, um, the black smell that, <laughs> like, it, I like, no I like matter, how, I like how you had to add with flavor. Oh yes, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, because yeah. I'm gonna tell you, I've had students who walk around with adobo in their backpacks because they were like residential students. They're like, I'm, I'm, I, I can't do this, and they're adding the spice in because they recognize that as we were trying. Um, Folks were doing their best, but when you're doing it in bulk, it didn't always come out in the way that you needed it to come out to be a sense of home. So, well, I think we can find adobo and tajin in the closets at Centro, can't we? You can. There it is. As, as, <laughs> as is hot sauce and Old Bay seasoning in our closet. So that is <laughs> Adele. Adele, I want. So this is a funny story. Like, let's talk. Let's talk through hard. So multicultural centers for sure can talk about food horror stories. What's your, give us your, give me your favorite food horror story, Adele, as folk have tried to give you Latinx food on a platter. No, here's the thing. Nothing can top Mexican hot chocolate that is so spicy that our own Mexican students could not drink it. How's that? (laughs) What? What did they put in it, Adele? Tell me. <laughs> what the hot sauce in it into the like? I don't know. Well, you know that Mexican I, hot chocolate is just, I mean, it really is just unbelievably tasty. Uh, but it does it, have a little chili in it, just a little bit of chili to spice it up. But yes, uh, that was the the short of it was exactly what I just described. Uh, it was just, we could not down it. So. So that's hilarious. Well, I think because I remember, I think I remember when you were doing the Mexican hot chocolate, and and you were like, it wasn't edible. And I remember you being so upset that they were like, well, because what it felt like. This is what it felt like. It was like they went in the back and were like, oh, they like chili powder. Boom. <laughs> But I know that I, I would have been so angry. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll save that up for the section on the stereotypes that we should not that we should steer away from. How's that? We should. Brooke, do you have a multicultural horror story? Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to think. To be honest, um, we try and keep things simple. Uh, you know, but I did. Honestly, I, where I worked before, we for I think it was for National Coming Out Day, we did a cupcake sale, but we were allowed to like make our own cupcakes and like individually wrap them and stuff. And the students, we we did a, they did a phenomenal job. They were these awesome cupcakes with blue frosting. And then, have you seen that rainbow like rope candy? Yeah. So they took the rainbow rope candy and like made little clouds and then did like a rainbow on the top of the cupcakes. And they were like the best things I've ever seen. And we tried to have uh, catering like replicate it the next year. No, (laughs) nope, 
negative. Like could not, we were like, no, this is not working. Like it, I it's, thought this it, was just a Latinx thing. I mean, we send them the recipe and everything, but evidently oh. has nothing to do with that. Uh, are, it is not just, I wish we could tell you it was a lot. Manny has, let me, let me. Sean, do you, do you want to talk about bake the, the, the fried chicken? How you did you know to... I was going to go to the, uh, I was going to, because there was, there are two, there are two major incidents. One, so one, we had ordered smothered John, chicken. John, maybe, maybe save one of them. Okay, we're only going to do one. Tell them about smothered chicken. So we had ordered smothered chicken for, was it Rota San, like our orientation, was it Rota Sankofa? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, how, how would you describe smothered chicken? How, what, what is smothered chicken? Smothered chicken is a southern chicken that is fried first, uh, fried, like deep fried chicken. So it's already delicious. It should be. And then you make a very thick gravy and you put it over the chicken and then you bake it a little bit. Cool. Now, imagine going, imagine your welcome event for this is the traditional, like most black Americans have had <laughs> this. We, they show up and the chicken looks baked. And it's like a, would you say a drizzle of like a jus? It was like a. <laughs> <laughs> it was naked. It did not have any crust, and we have put on like the program like smothered chicken. And so every black person went up to the to the guy. I was like, "That's not that's not smothered." And now the, the funniest thing though is Sean realizing this gets up on the mic. It's like, "Hey everybody! So we've got you know collard greens, got this." Um, we want to go for a little bit of a healthier approach. So we got some baked chicken for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. so Adele, you are not. So we we feel your pain, and Liliana, we feel your pain in trying to replicate the food items. What have been? What are the things that you would say are like the the things that are most easiest to replicate on a collegiate campus? And what are the things that seem to be like super out of the way for people to understand? The spirit and the coming together of community, no matter what campus I've been on, when we do create the space, you see it. And I think that's beautiful. Um, part of it is because you can often say that students, um, especially students who can be white passing or may not have the same experiences as some of their peers who can't white pass, um, coming together in a space, enjoying celebration of part of who they are. And what I've noticed is that geographically, this also changes. So Latinx Heritage Month looks very different in California, UCLA, than it does in rural Pennsylvania, where we're having a different type of program because the experiences of the students in those spaces have also been different. Um, so I'm thinking of California and some of the celebrations that I've seen there, where you are just in this beauty of diversity at all times, and you are feeling validated in your culture because everything is bilingual in Los Angeles. I mean, most of the places you're going to go to, either someone's going to speak Spanish, the sign is in Spanish, or your community is predominantly Latinx. Those types of needs differ, but I think that the coming together in celebration, as Adele mentioned, like the, this is a time for me to recognize maybe something that I don't recognize every day um, in a beautiful and positive way and, and carving out that ability to make it positive and to highlight the contributions that Latinx folks have had um, in our history. And to really focus on some of that academic work has been really easy because we do, we have a ton of Latinx academic scholars who are literally making movements now and who are alive today. And we always talk about some of our regulars um, and Dolores Huerta, bless her heart, she's still going strong. Um, she's still actually speaking this year. How old is she? Is she 89, 80? 
I'm not going to misspeak because if I do, she, she might come back for us. Um, she's definitely up there in age. Uh, Cesar Chavez isn't around, but I'm like, there are other folks and they're like the Malays, Blackwells who are making impacts in the way that we look at ourselves today and they're available and folks really react to being able to bring in these speakers who are impacting the way and shaping the way that we see Latinx in our community today. So I think across the board, that's always been well-received. And Dolores Huerta is 90. So imagine that's a huge milestone for us to aim to continue to be active like she is. That's, that's, that's crazy. What she's a, what still a booking speak, speaking roles. Like I think she has produced actually one of her, she's their keynote this year, one of their three keynotes for the, for the month. Um, so she's making the rounds. <laughs> Oh, wow. so you're, telling me, you're telling me that POCs have history on doing stuff right now. It's not just in the past. <laughs> really? <laughs> and that, like, I thought they, I thought we just had MLK and Cesar Chavez, and like, I thought they just stopped and they and they, you know, lived on their happy little life. But look at that! Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> history alive, well today, right? <laughs> As we kind of talk through it, do you have a favorite moment that you that you remember? Um, that you want to take us to in terms of like an experience with students or or even an experience in, in how you celebrate um, the Heritage Month? I'll speak for um, the what used to be our annual uh, center of photo shoot. So as you know, we're in Wilmington, we're surrounded by water. So every year we would do a photo shoot either at uh, Riceville Beach or at the riverfront. And the last one we had was at the riverfront by the water, uh, uh, water street. And um, we did a call for all of our students just to meet us out there on the, on the boardwalk. We brought the flags. We had the photographer ready and lined up. But when it was all said and done, what, what the product shows and the images show are students of all different backgrounds most of them Latinx, some of them allies. So students who identify with uh, Centro Hispano because of their immigrant experience from other parts of the world or because their best friends are Latinx or because they just feel at home at Centro because of whatever reason. So you, here you have this just ocean of people holding on to flags that may be their own, but may also not be their own. They may be their friend's flag. They may be their, you know, just somebody else's flags. But here we are, all of us, holding on to flags that identify with this community, with this, with this uh, population and just holding it and treasuring it and loving it as, as their own. So those images were just, uh, and those moments were just unbelievable. Uh, just a lot of love. And uh, I think it really shows this sense of fa- family and community uh, unity through shared experiences that uh, Centro is all about. So I know we've been talking about, about flags for a while now, and they're very meaningful, but it was really something else to see that people were holding uh, somebody else's flag as their own. So that was just beautiful to see. I created a Latinx Heritage Month planning committee, and folks who were invited to those spaces were usually our Latinx student union um, and faculty and staff who wanted, who weren't forced, who were voluntold to be part of a planning committee, but who generally wanted to be in that space. And I have to say my favorite moment was having students and faculty and staff sitting in a space together. Um, usually we, you know, we would meet in the spring to map out the fall, but having them in that space together in this inter exchange of ideas and students like really standing up for themselves and being able to collaborate with faculty because some of them, you know, they're not, they're not, they may not be in that major, 
um, or the faculty who would show up, you never knew. Like it was really a round table of anyone who wanted to do the work and who was willing to be a part of this space <laughs> come together and together have this beautiful creation of programming that you had buy-in from already your students and your faculty and staff before the semester even started because then you knew that the students felt supported from mm -hmm. folks on campus and faculty was doing the work and preparing. They knew that they had the buy-in from the students. And to me, it was just beautiful to see this many collaborative allies come together in a space to create something that was going to be on display and available to the rest of the community. And my favorite was watching the students develop themselves as leaders in those spaces, because the ones who really were passionate about certain subjects that like we had a a student who was all about DACA and undocumented, and that was their strength. And so they actually were able to collaborate to create a symposium where they partner with other institutions to be able to talk about the issues because the communities were so small at the institution we were in. And they're like, this is really important. And our faculty needs to be educated on who's in their spaces so that when we're having conversation about what you need to be doing and what internship or what work you need to have, like understand that not everyone has the same privileges in that space. So just kind of watching that melding of intellectual and creative fusion come together is, it's always my favorite part for Lennox Heritage like planning. That's, I live for that. I love that. Um, so, you know, this podcast is called the, At the Intersection. So I was wondering, uh, Dr. Sylvia, Liliana Brooke, are there any like, intersections between um, like notable Latinx, uh, queer folk or LGBT, LGBTQIA folks that, people listen to this podcast and read about afterwards or read or watch information about. Um, Cause again, like then there are, there are the, inter you are not just one identity. There are a lot of intersections. Uh, Brooks, Brooks are in her hand. So I'm Brooke. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there are quite a few notable um, queer Latinx folks. I think probably most notable um, is Sylvia Rivera, right? So yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, Stonewall, the Stonewall riots um, was started um, by a couple of uh, queer Latinx, um, but most notable, you know, Sil Sylvia Rivera is the one that, you know, threw the first brick uh, or the shot glass, I guess, actually, threw the shot glass um, and is the one that, that kind of sparked that entire riot, which, as we know, is... Um, you know, kind of where we get the modern day LGBTQA movement is from is from Stonewall. So I think she's probably most notable. Um, there, there are some other notable historical um, folks. So Frida, who's a Mexican, famous Mexican painter, um, is another one. Um, the first um, out LGBTQ person to run for office was also um, a Latinx individual, um, Jose, what was his name? Jose Sierra, I think. Um, and, and he was the first out um, person to run for public office, I believe in LA. Um, but so those are just, I mean, those are just a couple, but I mean, I think that as we know through queer history, we know that people of color are interwoven with queer history um, as well. So where there are queer, um, you know, kind of uprisings and fights going on, it's, it's there are always people of color interwoven with that. Um, even though as we know in general, 
especially American history is really whitewashed. And so that's queer history tends to be pretty whitewashed as well. But, um, you know, we know that people of color are interwoven with that. It sounds, it looks like Liliana's getting like really antsy. So uh, I think that she might have something to add. No, because like I recently learned about this person because we're talking about history in the moment now. And like Rafi Friedman Guspan is the first American transgender rights activist and openly transgender person's work at the White House who's a Latinx descent. And I was like, I didn't know this. And as I'm like doing my research, I was like, this is, why don't I know about this person? Right. Why isn't she on everything? Why isn't she leading it? Because we just don't know, right? It's happening in this moment. But I was like, look at her, setting trends, making waves. <laughs> I want to circle back uh, to one other question. Lillian, you talked about how you had a theme for Hispanic heritage month of your previous institution. Um, is there like a national body that themes each year? Um, I know for, um, Sean, help me out with the name. Asala. I know the acronym. Asala. Yeah, which uh, was uh, which was founded by the person who founded Black History Month. So there are there again, like as we talk about it, like February has a whole thing, and there's a national body association for the study of African American life and history. Um, Carter G. Woodson, um, who created Black History Week, and then it expanded into the month of month of February, of course. Um, and each year it's themed. So I think Manny's question is like, uh, is there a national coordinating Latinx body that goes, okay, this is how we're going to do it. This is the national thing. You can do whatever you like, but this is the national thing. That's a great question. I honestly don't know. That is a great um, question. I'm not aware of anything of that type either. I know that the governor declares, you know, it's uh, the, the, the annual declaration of Hispanic Heritage Month in North Carolina. Uh, at the national level, uh, you have similar things, but uh, and even here in Wilmington, at some point, depending on whether it is requested by the mayor of Wilmington or not, he will do also a proclamation, but nothing of like uh, theme related. Yeah, like the themes are always based on the needs for the institution. So if like we notice that, um, I think the last one we did a raíces theme, which was our roots, because we were really like we needed to go back to ground zero and really have that conversation and, and explore the historical components of identity and what that has meant. Um, so that was like the theme for the year. I think after post-election, um, we were very much into political advocacy and who were the folks um, in our communities that had championed a lot of this social justice work and identifying who they were and really specifically looking at some of those social justice leaders. And that was the theme for one year. And then prior to that was authors and really exploring the arts component for Latinx, because oftentimes that's part of the conversation that gets lost because we get so focused on culturally, like, what is it that, that value, what, what has the most value? What is your title? What is your prestige? And we have so many artists in the community and writers. It's like, I mean, House on Mango Street was one of the first books I ever read where the author was a Latina. And that is like ingrained in my head as one of the first times that I was able to read something with a Latinx perspective. I was like, oh my God, did you live my life like <laughs> to this book? And I was so excited about that. And just kind of, especially for, because like, we have students who are very, sometimes very science-based majors and they weren't getting some of these perspectives and if we were seeing that in our space, then we said, okay, let's let's explore the other aspects because you're not getting it um, academically in that side of the house, but we can share it with you and we can create um, this learning environment where you're still connected to your culture and your identity and you're learning about 
the pieces you may not get on a daily basis. This actually has me thinking about another part of the conversation that both you and Adele mentioned about passing, actually. Because you all both talked about like white passing. Like y'all were like, da-da-da-da-da, white passing, blah, 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 blah. And one of the intersections that I definitely think that is unique to both our shops is that passing, being being white passing has like a, a history and a synonymous history uh, in terms of like how how communities of color work together, how they're seen, how people are constructed. And I'm wondering, um, so for us in, in black communities, what, you know, white passing would have been something that was practiced mostly in the 1920s, 30s, coming out of right out of slavery. Um, but I mean, we still have light skinned African-Americans who can pass as white, right? Just not, not because they're trying so hard, but it's just because they present. It's just how they present. I'm wondering, is the history of passing in Latinx communities as fragile, as complicated as the way, um, as the way I might understand it? Sean, I think that uh, what I have what I have noticed, especially over the last, uh, let's say, five to eight years or so, the the immigrant sentiment here in the in the U.S. has been just uh, so negative, right? Um, the anti-immigrant feel that I've actually had colleagues who are Latinx, uh, but who either pass as black or as white. And they are choosing to remain, to steer away from their Latinx identity because in their words, it is easier to just fall either under just the black majority or the white, or the, the, the black norm or the white norm in, in the US rather than fall into the immigrant community, which is just, has been um, just suffer this uh, I guess, increase of anti-immigrant sentiment uh, over the past two elections. So they're actually choosing, and and in their words, you know, for them to say it is uh, hard enough to be Black, I don't need to be Black and Latino. So I don't need to be doing that. And so those that are uh, white passing, they may also just rather stick with with the white population and completely put aside their Latinx identity. Now, long term and down the road, research will show you that the rejection of the self and the rejection of the of the identity actually ends up kicking them in the tail, you know, because then they're they're carrying that weight, they're dragging that uh, bag of stones or whatever it is that they don't want to face at the moment. And later on, it ends up biting them. Uh, So but I have actually heard that from the mouths of um, just individuals who have that choice at this point. Mm. And uh, based on whatever the, the uh, turmoil might be or the turbulence may be, they're going to choose whatever the, is the, the, the best route for them at the time. So I'm going to take it even further back here, and we're going to talk about the colonizer. Uh, so if you're talking about Spain colonizing South America, there's something very different that the Spaniards did that the English didn't do. Spaniards were allowed to marry indigenous people. Like there's historical like notations of these, I guess, interracial marriages, you can call it. And it was almost seen as a sanctitude and purifying of this race. And the Spaniard was encouraged 
to create basically the mestizo population in, in a lot of parts of this country. And culturally, that has been ingrained for eons, right? Like we're talking about folks who really believed that the lightification of the skin was a purification of the race. And I think that in those testaments, we can really relate um, across culture there. And when we're talking about folks who have had that kind of rhetoric ingrained in them for such a long time, you often have this belief that I need to do what's best and I need to provide. And if I'm coming and I'm, and I'm here in the United States and I want what is best for my person, what is best for my kid, then this is what I'm going to do. I mean, I remember growing up in Los Angeles, I had, I had friends who, whose parents intentionally did not teach them Spanish because yep. they thought they were doing them a service. And they're like, this will help you assimilate. Um, I have lots of students, lots of former colleagues whose parents did not teach them Spanish intentionally. Yep. Yes, and it's like this conversation of, well, what does that mean? And if maybe if you if you do have more Eurocentric traits in your physical features, that might be something that help, is helpful. But for some of them, I mean, they looked as indigenous as some of the folks back in the motherland. And now you have folks who are looking a certain way who can't speak the language and now they're struggling. Adele said like that is like a whole convoluted identity crisis that determines itself. Right. So I think it's really going to be based on the individual and what they're most comfortable with. Um, But it's also this understanding of culturally, there are these aspects and things that we've been taught that have been like passed down throughout the years of what is considered better of what is considered um, you moving forward in life and, and what is aspirational to some extent. And obviously that's not everybody, but there are those conversations. It's the reason we have colorism in our community. And yep. I know that that exists within the black community as well. Yep. And we're talking about passing. Like I think of Brooke, like even hetero passing, like what, and that's the privilege. So if I can be hetero passing and then that's something that I don't have to pass and I don't, I don't have to like deal with it in this moment. Um, I may not choose to deal with it in this moment. Um, but that's a whole other conversation if we're going to break it down into colorism into both of these communities. <laughs> no, we, we agree. I, I think that, you, I mean, some of the terms that you're talking about come straight out of Creole culture, right? So mulatto, mm-hmm. quadroon, octoroon. Um, and as a light-skinned African-American whose mom was, um, she was close to white passing. Like she, if she dyed her hair, she could have passed as white. Um, and so... We like this is an ongoing conversation also in our community, right? So like this black white binary and all of these other kinds of ways, and I, I mean, you know, and I would imagine Brick would say it was a, a, also a heteronormative binary, right? That that there are rewards for being on either end of the spectrum, but like once you get in the middle, if you are in that middle zone, like it, it gets real cuckoo and crazy, and so you end up having to make legitimate choices that deny parts of yourself uh, for sure. And so that's why, like, when you mentioned it, like, I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I'm hearing them say, use the same language. I mean, for us, like, you know, there's a body of Black literature that talks about what it means to be biracial, and it's called, like, kind of tragic mulatto. And so, like, there's a book called Quicksand and Passing that really kind of, kind of typifies, like, this kind of, like, biracial identity enough that you are light enough to pass. Um, But, like, that's not, you know, I mean, I think to like in Black America, if you talk about passing right now, I think we're waking up to seeing this African American studies scholar out of Georgetown pass as white, pass as black, but who's actually white, and or she was, and she's actually passing as Afro Latino, yeah. Latina, 
Amanda wants to. <laughs> oh yeah, she she could she could. I guess she was light enough that they were like, well, she couldn't just brown be, enough. Maybe brown brown, brown enough that like she can't be. You can't be just black. It's like, well, I'll be Afro Latino. I'll, I'll sprinkle some more ethnicity that I'm not at all. <laughs> oh no, the sprinkles. <laughs> is this like a Rachel Dolezal moment? Is that? Oh yeah, that? yeah. It's like yeah. She had to resign. She had to resign like yesterday. Like she resigned from her position because oh, she had made her whole life on African American So She has a book, major book out on um like on so Rachel two Yeah, like she <laughs> and the other the other thing is like she went after Black and Latino women's careers. Like she was also a major gatekeeper. So she, like, so, like, when she wrote her article because of uh, Afro-Latina sister came out and was like, nah, you not, you Jewish from Kansas City, right? Like, you're not Latinx, Black, or wherever you say you're from. And so she, she had, I mean, for 30 years, she had been, um, uh, uh, you know, Black-faced <laughs> as an Afro-Latinx woman from New York, from the Bronx. I think that's where she said she was from. <laughs> <laughs> now you're bringing out the other side of that coin because I think of our Cuban brothers or sisters or Argentinians who, because of colonization, may be blonde and blue-eyed and who feel like sometimes they're not welcome in, in community spaces that are catering to Latinx in the United States because they're not fitting this mold of what Latinx is supposed to be. And this kind of sentiment of, well, am I welcomed in that space because just like, I don't know who distributes the Latinx cards officially and who tells you, yep, here you go, you're Latinx. Congratulations, bienvenidos, welcome to the club. I've never gotten one, so I'm not sure where that comes from. But this conversation of well, what does it mean? Because I think that the United States media has done a phenomenal job of creating a perception of what Latinx is supposed to look like, right? And Sofia Vergara is that. Apparently all Latin women look like Sofia Vergara. And they all have the little accent. And that is the expectation of, of womanhood in the Latinx community. But when folks don't meet that criteria, like there is this conversation among them. So you have this, this counterpoint all the time of am I too much or am I not enough? And if I am not not enough, how do I not become a Rachel Dolezal and prove that I am from my community? And like, do you carry that weight? So it's, I think it's super complicated because we're talking about like 20 plus countries. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all blended and thrown in, shaken up and said, here you go. Welcome. Yeah. Latinx, Hispanic. <laughs> this Latin- category. I mean, and so, you, okay, so I guess maybe last question. Let's parse the terms. What's the difference between Latinx and Hispanic? My perspective is super biased on this one. Well, tell, <laughs> like, give us your bias and then Adele, Adele will clean you up, I guess. Adele will clean you up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hispanic to me, I associate with colonization, right? It is the ideology that the language itself is the one contributing cultural factor that unites all these people. Um, the language itself is varying depending on location. So that's, that's my one piece. Um, I lived in Spain for a little bit and I can tell you, I was extremely frustrated with Spaniards when they're like, that's not the word. I'm like, I'm sorry, how many of you are there? How many uh, South and Central Americans are there? Oh, I'm sorry, in Mexico, how many? So you may have created the language, but let me tell you, the United States, even though people don't think of it as a Spanish-speaking country, we are a Spanish-speaking country. And because the term Chicano was something I could never associate with because I'm not Mexican, even though I grew up in Los Angeles, I love Chicano because to me, that was the identifying factor. It spoke to the person who was born of 
Latinx parents growing up in the United States, bicultural all the time, two languages at all given points, two different perspectives, learning about the motherland and then living in America, the land of the free supposedly, where we have all these opportunities and creations. So Latinx to me was very much the compromise of, okay, I am, I am detaching from the colonizer and the roots because my Spanish is not up to the colonizer's level of Spanglish, of Spanish abilities. <laughs> um, as I was told multiple times in Cordoba, with the fuzz, and I said, and that's beautiful, and that's great, and that's unique to you, but that is not who my people were. That's not um, who and, <laughs> and that is not who we were. The Mayans lost a lot of their language. Like, there are certain words that are still in my vocabulary that I know are indigenous, but we don't even give credit where credit is due. So to me, Latinx is, is a newer version. It means it is more inclusive to the people who are kind of navigating this bicultural life in the United States while still being associated with the motherland, but also recognizing that I am on my motherland. Like I am a US citizen. This is part of what I embrace and I have every right to be here. And just because Mexico lost that war and we still have places like Los Angeles, San Diego, like all these Spanish words (laughs) that are in California, right? right? And Texas, El Paso, like all these places. To me, that say like no, no. I very much belong here. That that to me is Latinx, and that is kind of the lens through which I view the two different words. And I also love the fact that it's gender nonconforming. Like you have a little bit of everything because our language is very gentrified, right? <laughs> you have your ellos and your ellos. So I love the term Latinx for those reasons. Adele, you want to add to it because I'm. I'm yes, I'm, absolutely. I'm I definitely want to add to it. I don't know if you can hear me. Okay. So let's look at why Hispanic, why are we even using the word Hispanic when we are here in the United States? So uh, let's put all all eyes on the census, okay? The census and just the check boxes that the government is expecting us to uh, put ourselves into, uh, cluster us somehow, uh, is definitely reason why we are using the term Hispanic. And you still see the term Hispanic in our government forms, uh, in the census report in particular, just clustering everybody that somehow is associated by heritage to a Spanish-speaking country. Uh, so that's how uh, the government is really kind of choosing uh, or not giving us enough boxes to expand our true identity into. Uh, but I do agree, uh, Hispanic is definitely tied to, to the Spaniard, to the Spanish, and everything that has to do with that language. Um, I have to note that for those of us that are immigrant, we are never, ever, ever consider ourselves Hispanic uh, in our lives until we set foot in this country. And we might not even then identify ourselves as Hispanic, but we're not given any options. And that is the only option that we have to check when it comes to our ethnic identity. That is the box that best fits. So some people are simply choosing not to check any boxes. That's definitely being me plenty of times. Uh, Nine out of 10, I just don't check the box because I don't feel comfortable with it. Uh, But um, in terms of the, the difference, going back to your question, Hispanic and Latinx, uh, Latinx is definitely the more inclusive uh, word now, and that is identifying uh, anybody who has a heritage tied to the Latin American world, uh, including, uh, like Liliana mentioned, the United States. Um, I love it. You know, so 
that is something very debatable. As you know, the name of our center has the word Hispanic in it. Uh, that was uh, the original name by the founder uh, of Centro back under the, the, the leadership of Chancellor Luzzi. And back in the day, that was 15 years ago, there's still, uh, we were still very much linking things to those governmental names and to those governmental boxes. So uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx was uh, very seldom used, uh, at least here in North Carolina, which we know we are definitely very, very late in our development of this whole population. Uh, it was definitely the, the use, the term used at the time in which Centro Hispano was founded. So, yeah. Don't get us twisted. So we also recognize like we're privileged, right? Like Adele and I work in this world and it's what we do. But if you look at Pew Research Center, I think less than 25% of folks use the term Latinx. Like it is very much our academic circles and we are in these spaces. But if you're talking to general public, that is not a term that they might be familiar with because that's just not something that they're around or recognize or has that type of, um, of meaning in the same way. Yeah, and I, so that's good to know. I think in the Africa and and black study black spaces it's Africana and I, and Brooke is there a word that is kind of like a intellectual word for y'all? Yeah, I mean you hear you hear the the word queer on in higher ed and in academic spaces where if you go outside of academia and use the word queer it really kind of depends on your audience. I mean it's I would say I would say the word queer is kind of a younger term. But when Liliana was talking about Latinx and saying that it was a more inclusive kind of all encompassing, like really felt like that was the term that that kind of described her experience. I think that that's where I think that's where a lot of folks are with queer, too, is that this it's a more inclusive term that really describes the experience that a lot of folks are going through. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, the word queer and, and the word, I've never thought about that before. Like it was something that clicked when, when Liliana was kind of talking about it. Um, and I don't know if that's even a proper kind of analogy there, but, um, that was just something that kind of, that kind of got me thinking. Yeah. I, I think I, for sure, like listening into Liliana and Adele talk about the language piece as well. Like talk about like how their span the Spanishes are different. And I, you know, in my mind, I was like, ooh, so everybody's speaking ghetto something. Like we have ghetto English, we have ghetto African-American vernacular, and we have ghetto Spanish. And I love it because again, like maybe America is is a is a summation of like of our working class communities and our underclass communities and like where we pull from language in in, in like pop culture is for sure from from spaces that are marginalized, right? So like everybody's speaking what we want to say, what we want them to speak, right? So we, uh, and uh, you know, I think that's a cool piece to think about. All right, so I want to ask, since you've led us there, Liliana and Adele, in our wrong way segment, you going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. Yes, you're going the wrong way. Can we help our people not go the wrong way? So what are your... Let's let's just you can in rapid fire succession. You're going the wrong way. Win. Go, Liliana. You assume. Oh, go. You assume that everybody who's Latinx or Hispanic uh, speaks Spanish. Wrong way. <laughs> Next. Wrong way, Liliana. <laughs> you assume that they all share the same foods and everyone likes a burrito. Boom. Wrong way. Brooke. Wrong way. 
I don't know. I was going to get called on for this. Everybody gets I'm, called on. I, I'm still thinking about a burrito because it's, <laughs> it, it's lunchtime. But speaking of burritos, I, I think going along with that, that you having a, a white person taco night is a way to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. Not good. Wrong way. Manuel, where, how are we going the wrong way on your world? Uh, when you think that you can't be Black and Latinx. Ooh, wrong way. We going the wrong way. Dion. Uh, when you think all Black people love fried chicken. I personally love fried chicken, but <laughs> <laughs> not all Black people love fried chicken. <laughs> well, and the other thing is we share a love of chicken between Black and Latin X spaces. So, yes. Afro-Latinos might like a piece of fried chicken. Adele, wrong way. What else can they not know that they need to know? <laughs> All Latinx can dance. Oh! <laughs> Preach it, Adele! Preach it! <laughs> <laughs> You're going the wrong way. Liliana, give us our last tidbit. What's the wrong way? <laughs> when you assume uh, everyone is Mexican. <laughs> Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Yes. And I, you know, I'll be honest with you, because black folk are from the South, when they see Latinx folk, they just, it does not, it's just, they're always Mexican. I own that on behalf of all of my black <laughs> people. And I want to apologize to all of my Latinx friends and family members and cousins, because uh, I'm trying. But it's hard work to stop them from thinking a different... different Not just country. North Mexico, South Mexico, West Mexico, East Mexico. They have, <laughs> they're all Mexico. different countries. I agree. I agree. So, Seabrook, it's not just white people. It's something <laughs> like... <laughs> so well, I'm just going to speak for white people. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I am not them. <laughs> I am not. Yes. Yeah, so, we. So okay. So, that's our wrong way segment. Um, and now we're going to ask everybody to grab your your one resource that you think will be helpful um, in our Crossroads segment. And so Crossroads, um, I'm going to empower Dion. Uh, Dion, what's your what's your what's your resource for for helping us think about uh, Latinx culture and history and heritage? Uh, I would say probably your local library would probably be a good place to start. Um, if you don't have a local library, uh, definitely look something up uh, online. Uh, that's preferably uh, if you're looking for books or articles uh, that have been uh, peer reviewed, scholarly uh, written uh, would be a good place to start. It's usually these days I see in libraries uh, uh, cultural sections that you can easily access and uh, find resources. All right. Um, I'm going to Brooke. Brooke, what's your resource? Uh, what's your a crossroads resource. Yeah, well, on the other side of that, if you're not looking for something super scholarly, I'm into young adult um, novels. I think that young adult novels can really um, kind of bring out the nuances of, of identity and what folks are, are experiencing. So I want to throw out there uh, Juliet Takes a Breath um, by Gabby Rivera, who, um, and it's a book about um a queer latinx um character growing up um in the bronx i believe if i remember correctly and it's just about their experience kind of through their identity and what that's like and um kind of going through like like white privilege and coming out and long distance relationships and kind of 
runs the gamut. So I, again, I'm a huge like young adult literature person. So that's where I'm going to go with that. All right. Um, Manuel, what's your resource in Crossroads? Um, so I love a good podcast. Um, so I, I have learned a lot, particularly about like Latinx and culture from Latino USA, which is an NPR podcast. Um, they often, they we do love NPR. our NPR over here. We, we do, do love a good NPR. NPR over here. Um, it's a, it's a great, again, it's like, it's, I'm very auditory. So just kind of hearing it as I'm walking to work, doing, uh, clean, doing some chores. Um, they, they do interviews, they do like deep kind of deep exposés. And it's, it's really good for someone who, who grew up in Wilmington, which is not exactly, you know, the most diverse space ever, um, to help tell me become better versed around Latinx issues um, and just Latinx culture in general. Um, and then again, the book I mentioned earlier, Making Hispanics, because I think it, it gives a good idea of how this label is kind of put on folks, um, and how, talk about these benefits and uses, but also, you know, how, how it's kind of affected the general perception um, as we've moved on. So those are my two resources. Awesome. I'm going to, we're definitely going to privilege the, the Latinx sisters with the most to end the segment. So I'll just put out my resource. I am a big fan of Eduardo Bonilla Silva's Racism Without Racist. We've read it a couple of times in the space. Um, he is a major um, kind of uh, Afro-Latino um, uh, scholar on race and racisms um, and really kind of helps build, give us insight. So I think it's important for us to have intellectual capacity. It's really a good read. It is a thick read, so this is, might be a good read for like a reading circle if that's something you're interested in. And then I am going to say like that's like that's the thing that I would um, go to. That's my go to. I did. I did also see uh, it, there's a television show on Netflix, but I, me and Liliana were talking about it, and I cannot remember the name of it right now off the top of my head. Um, but like uh, there are a couple of television shows that are now taking uh, taking seriously Latinx families and, and culture and heritage. Um, and so I would invite folks to like even like like look at, uh, at, at some of the shows that are recently out around like how gentrification is affecting, uh, even from a creative standpoint. So like you can have more um, more um, understanding of of our world. Uh, I'm gonna kick it to Liliana, and then Adele will have the last word. Liliana, what's in your crossroads? Was the show we were talking about Hentified? Hentified, yes. Mm-hmm. Hentified. So that, that's the newer one. I think it was on Netflix and it talks more about like the current experience. Um, but also on Netflix, if like, man, if you're looking for something that's a little more fun, it's called Latin History for Morons. And it's actually John <laughs> Leguizamo. And he's like, a, he's a comedian. So he does this because his son's being bullied and it's, it's hysterical. And it's like a quick note on it. Um, but it just gives you a quick preview. If you're looking for something a little more academic and you want to tackle two birds with one stone, African-American and Latinx history of the United States by Paul Ortiz. I really like this one because oftentimes when we talk about social justice movements, it's either one or the other. And I really appreciate that he does a good job at at kind of blending when these movements were happening together. Um, Because I always think of like so many folks know the story of Brown versus Board of Education. But not everyone knows the story of Sylvia Mendes, which precedes Brown Board versus Education, uh, who kind of desegregated schools in California as the first Mexican-American going into these white schools, right? And, and kind of sets that precedent for what happens next in Brown. So I, I love that, that he does that, that he does a really good job of kind of highlighting both of those movements at the same time and how they really played into each other and, and 
showing that it, it was a unit. <laughs> it was like, we've existed in community and maybe that's just right. my Compton roots coming through. Like we are in it together, hey. <laughs> kind of deal, but does a great job at it. <laughs> Adele, tell us, tell us more about what's on your Crossroads segment. So I love charts, data, and anything that I can visually see to see growth, changes, uh, influence, and all of that stuff. And the hub is the Pew Hispanic Center. Oh, dope. Uh, just the latest research on everything that you can think of from education, health, uh, safety, uh, immigration issues, uh, purchasing power, all of that. Uh, so Pew Hispanic Center. And then to wrap up, uh, where we started today, we're talking about National Hispanic Heritage Month. And so there's a huge hub online, uh, HispanicHeritageMonth.gov, HispanicHeritageMonth.gov. And there, there's a little bit for everybody. Uh, exhibits and collections, there's audio and video. There's a section if you're a teacher and you're looking to even further this uh, information out to your students, all kinds of images. And um, it's just a great, great hub. So with that... Um, I'll definitely wrap that up with Hispanic Heritage Month. We love it. We are so it. We thank you. Um, I, on behalf of all of us, we want to say thank you for joining us for our inaugural podcast. And uh, Liliana and Adele, I think we need a little, I think we need a little language. We need to switch up the languages a little bit to say goodbye. So I'm going to say it in Gullah. I'll, I'll see y'all soon when the creek don't rise and the moon don't shine. Hasta luego a todos y muchas gracias por sintonizarnos. Hasta pronto. Stay tuned and follow us on our Instagram and uh, our Facebook to so stay tuned for upcoming programs and events. <laughs> we'll see you later at the intersection. Thanks, everybody. Nos vemos. You've been listening to At The Intersection, a collaborative podcast between the Upperman African American Cultural Center, the Moen Schultz LGBTQIA Resource Office, and Centro Hispano. Upperman, the Mo and Centro are all located under the UNCW Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, known as OIDI. To find out more about OIDI, visit uncw.edu/diversity.